on Date with the Night, and today I'm featuring an indie rock band who is infusing mid-2000s New York indie sounds with modern production. Today I'm joined by Dylan Chenfeld of Rebounder. How are you, Dylan? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the pod. I'm so sad that I didn't get to see you when you were playing in Toronto during the summer. I was right in the middle of a work contract and like pulling long days, but I am sporting the Rebounder t-shirt you sent me in the mail. So thank you for that. Of course, absolutely. And you're originally from New York, but you're in LA right now, correct? Yeah, we finished up our tour last night. So we wrapped our last show for the year yesterday. So now we have a week of some studio work in LA, but I'm from the city and live in the city. Nice. So how was the tour? How many shows did you play altogether? This year we played 70-something shows, but this most recent tour was just four shows in December. Were you playing with other bands or just you guys? We did a show for The Enemy, which was kind of cool. And then we did a handful of shows with a band called Sunroom from San Diego. And then we just played a few shows with a British band called Lovejoy. And they were all super great. Yeah, you had a write-up in Enemy as well. Like, that's really cool. How does it feel to sort of be coming up as a new band and being talked about in publications like Enemy that are really related to this kind of indie sleaze revival that we're seeing right now? It feels great. It's cool. I mean, we are obviously, if you couldn't tell them everything, big fans of a lot of that stuff. So if those guys are into what we're doing, that's cool and helpful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Can you give me a brief history of how Rebounder came to be? Absolutely, yeah. Well, the band was started with me and my little brother, Noah. And we write and do all the songs and stuff. And Noah and I grew up together, obviously, in the city. And we've played in a ton of bands, had a ton of bands in high school, didn't go to college because we were touring musicians. And we were like hired guns, touring in quite a few other people's bands, kind of hoping that one day we could like do our own thing, so to speak. And we'd always come back from tour and work on songs, recordings, whatever. And then we'd kind of go back out on various hired gun tours. And then we kind of just hit a place where I really started focusing on production and trying to get like the recordings to sound really good. Because in the past, we'd always, you know, we'd been writing songs forever. And I thought that our songwriting was good, but the recordings maybe not so much. I moved into a studio space that was given to me by the band Delta Spirit, who occupied it before me. And we, you know, made a real focus to try to record and the plan was always, you know, we never wanted to be hired guns. We just wanted to be on tour. And I was a touring drummer. Noah was a touring drummer. Noah was a touring keyboardist. I was a touring guitarist. And then eventually we got to a place where we thought our recordings were good enough. And I was like, okay, this will be Rebounder. And so it initially kind of was a solo project, but pretty quickly Noah became my, because Noah and I had been kind of songwriting partners forever. And initially I was kind of a handful of songs I kind of did alone or with other friends. And then pretty quickly it kind of became Noah and my thing. And then once we had recordings that I thought were good enough, we were like, let's just go play as many shows as possible. And then Zach, who plays guitar in the band, and I went to preschool together. We've been friends our whole lives and we Aww. always played music together. So it kind of just felt like, you know, we should do this together. And then Kobe, who drums for us, had moved to New York to find a band to join from Nashville, although he's from Georgia originally. And we were introduced by a mutual friend, right, as we were looking for a drummer. And he felt like the perfect fit. And we kind of 
did our first tour right before the pandemic. And then we lived together during the pandemic and kind of the second we could hit the ground running touring, we did. You've known each other for so long, so it must be kind of great to be in a band with all your friends. Kind of reminds me of the Strokes a bit and your origin story here. What were some of like your musical influences growing up like amongst yourself and your band members? I was like kind of grew up a really big Beatles fan, really big Bob Dylan fan. Kind of the classic rock stuff was what was on in the household. That was kind of my initial introduction to rock music, Beatles and Bruce and whatever my parents were into. And then initially in high school, I was kind of into like really complex music and really technical stuff and like playing fast and that whole thing. And then kind of towards the end of high school, I'd started to discover this kind of garage rock thing that I think when I got into it, it couldn't have been less cool. You know what I mean? It couldn't have been less out of fashion or whatever. You know, I went to high school. It's like 2012. Like the shit was dead. I mean, it was about to start coming back in in an interesting way. But for me, it was kind of just like it started to connect with me and I really got into it. But, you know, I would say prior to that, I did not have like a particularly like I had a very musical upbringing, but I wouldn't say it was like. You know, some people are like, I grew up only listening to classical and then I found like popular music or I grew up, you know, I was kind of like, I grew up listening to like, my parents were both born in the 60s. They've got excellent taste. And I kind of got into that stuff. And then as high school came around, I got more into, you know, average rock and roll bands and hip hop. And then by the end of high school, I was like, let me tell you about Daft Punk's discography. Let me tell you about their bands before Daft Punk. You know what I mean? And like all their other interesting things. How did you come up with the name Rebounder? Well, you know, I knew I didn't want to use my name, and I knew it should have a name that didn't immediately evoke a genre. If you can tell how someone sounds by their name, then I think you've kind of already lost the war to some degree. Yeah. I thought Rebounder kind of felt a little bit genre agnostic, which I really liked, and wasn't my name, which was key. No one had used it before. And it's kind of a long story, but there's an artist named McConan who had that big song, Club Going Up on a Tuesday. Yeah. And a bunch of other great songs. And McConan had this song called where your girl at and in the song he kind of like has this amazing line where he goes i'm back in new york i feel like patrick ewing and patrick ewing was like the star of the knicks when we were like growing up really young and he was like the guy him and latrell sprewell and i was like remember like reading about patrick ewing and i saw this article that said patrick ewing is the knicks number one rebounder and i was like number one rebounder would be cool as hell and then it felt like there was like too many things going on. Also, if you type in number one rebounder, it's just going to be like NBA stats nonstop. Yeah. So I was like, let's just do rebounder and like, let's see, see what happens with that. And that managed to be our thing. Although, of course, I didn't, I just typed it into Spotify and saw no one had it. And I was like, great, we'll rock with that. And then of course, now when you type in our name, all you're getting is like basketball trampoline references and shit like that. It's a great name. And you guys grew up in New York? Is that where you're originally from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, Noah, and Zach are all born and raised in Manhattan. And then Kobe is from Atlanta, Georgia. You hear a lot of like new bands coming up, but they're not originally from New York. So that's really sick that you kind of have your roots there. So I don't know if you were kind of reading articles about music in the 2010s, but there were things written about the guitar being dead. And I never really believed that. I just kind of felt that the guitar maybe in the mid 2010s to late 2010s was not necessarily trending sonically, but that it would come back eventually. Like your band and your music, it really does exemplify this kind of band culture that I've been hoping to see make a huge comeback. So do you kind of see that in the air yourself? And are you excited for this? And did you predict that this would happen when you started making your music together? I'm very excited for it. I absolutely didn't predict it. I just 
thought that we would make music and I would work my hardest to make it really good. And if it was good enough, then we would have some level of success. And that was like as much as I thought about it. I definitely wasn't thinking about it like, oh, the pendulum has swung very far in this direction. That means it will swing back in this direction. You know, like that was not a, like it's not a calculated thought. Yeah. I think that when we started Rebounder, guitar music was deeply not in vogue. And who's to say how in vogue it truly is now, or who's to say how even guitar music Rebounder is. But I didn't think that this thing was going to happen but it's cool that it's happening. It's cool to be a part of it, certainly. And like, it feels authentic. It doesn't feel kind of after the fact in any way. But I do think that like the day after rock and roll is invented, somebody said rock and roll is dead. And to some degree, the day after anything is invented, it's dead. And my favorite artists, big picture and small picture, are the ones who are kind of on their own trip. And I think even though we've been lumped into a handful of scenes with a lot of artists that I respect and like, so I'm never too complaining about it, but I think to some degree we're kind of on our own trip. So I like to dip our toe into that. But it's exciting that people are taking bands more seriously. I think that, you know, maybe the 2010s were the era of the solo artists and that had a lot to do with like the cultural shift that occurred in music and what kind of music gets covered. And I think maybe there's like a thing that I'm probably saying incorrectly, but like the WWEification of culture, you know, I think it's like (laughs) attaching yourself to a solo artist and you follow their exploits on social media and you follow their storyline or their narrative and that's like easy to attach yourself or to connect with one person that all makes sense i think when it's like a handful of people and you only have one screen maybe it's harder to connect with them or it's harder to get to know them or get to understand what it is and maybe that's why in the generation me the iphone generation the times that we live in now maybe that's why like the concept of the band has been destroyed that and also like you don't really need one to create i mean i record almost all the instruments myself you know like it's doable yeah. But the music that you personally cover and the music that it seems like you love so much that I know I love so much as well, that music is fantastic and timeless, you know, and not all music is fantastic and timeless. And sometimes music is really in vogue and then it goes away and then it doesn't come back because it was bad. You know what I mean? And you could say, oh, well, I like that because that was hopping when I was 20. And it's like, well, was it good or were you 20? This is an instance of where, oh, no, it was actually good. You know, like you can see the clip where Billie Eilish is like, oh, album of the year is the Strokes record, the new one. The biggest artist in the world thinks the best album of the year was made by the Strokes in their 40s. And she's correct, you know? So clearly it's much more influential than anyone thought it would be. And the fact that it was maybe so out of vogue is allowing for it to come back and to be so in vogue. Yeah, exactly. I loved everything you're saying here. You know, you have this song that you came out with in 2021, I believe, Meet Me at the Bar. First of all, is that a nod to Lizzie Goodman's Meet Me in the Bathroom? It's not, although I did like that book and I read it really quickly and devoured it on tour, but that song was written long before that book came out. That song's a pretty old song. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I thought it was 2021. I'm probably mistaken here in my notes, but I love the music video you did for that one. You're singing your own song and you have Mad Men in the background and you have Lou Reed and you have like all these different references in that music video. How did that kind of come together? I really like the idea of doing this video where I was walking. And I was walking on a kind of elliptical machine. Yeah. And then we just put a green screen behind me. I think the green screen was a towel. And then I was like, I want to just do a video where I'm singing the video at the camera because I feel as though in some way I kind of resent that I have to make music videos and participate on the internet. Yeah. It's not for me, but I do it. And I kind of thought I would make a music video that to me was kind of like the music video, capital M, capital V, ultimate music video. Like, I'm going to look at the camera and sing the song at you. That's it. I'm not going to pretend like I'm doing anything else. Yeah. I'm not going to pretend like I'm selling you something I'm not selling you. I'm selling you the song. And on a separate wave, I was like, what if I made a music video that was like all footage of works that I thought were iconic, some of which maybe are famous in zeitgeist like Mad Men and Lou Reed and Breakfast at Tiffany's, some of which are maybe Holy Mountain and slightly less famous. And what if I made a video 
that was chopped up where every clip corresponded in some way or another to a lyric. Yeah. And I cut that together. And then as I had this other idea where the video is just me singing at you, and then I kind of had the idea, like, let's put these two together. And that's what that video was. I guess maybe at the bar, me in the bathroom. I think you're not the first person to draw that line. Although <laughs> I do love the book and I got to go to some like the book events a couple of years ago when that book first dropped, but no relation in that particular instance. Yeah, it's very DIY. I love that music video. I also like the one for Japanese posters too, like the whole concept of being in a laundromat and boy meets girl and they're sharing uh, headphones and listening to a song together. It's kind of simple, but sweet and gets to the point. In Enemy, you received like this write-up that described you as a dangerously exciting revival of what made New York City's mid-2000s indie scene so vital. Like, What attracts you to this time period and aesthetic in New York? Or was that like just sort of a culmination of all your interests? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was never like, man, 2003 to 2007, that's my shit. You know what I mean? I love so much modern music. There's so many interesting things happening today in music, but I was a musician that really connected with a lot of these acts and the strokes and the AES and all those things. And I feel as though growing up in New York, just given my age and where New York was when I was like first going to bars and going out and had a fake ID and all those things, I kind of feel like I caught the tail end of something. You know what I mean? I I snuck into the Strokes' Tommy Hilfiger show in 2010. And that was the first time I saw the Strokes, who at the time I think people thought they were broken up because they hadn't played a show since 2006. And it was like a really special evening for me. And I was like, damn, that band, they did it. You know what I mean? And I didn't know all the context. I didn't know, you know, the internet was around, but we weren't all addicted to it yet. And I just kind of went to the show. I stuck in the back door at Lincoln Center, and it was amazing. And actually, that night, I kind of met a guy that later would introduce me to Kobe Arner, the drummer of Rebounder. So it was just meant to be. And from then on out, I was just kind of like, I got to get into all these records. I got to get to the solo records. And I grew up downtown pretty close to the East Village. So some of these characters are people that I've seen around and had casual relationships with or shared studio space with, whatever. And so it kind of feels interesting to be a decade and a half removed. But I think it speaks to the long shadow they cast, you know? Yeah, it's funny that you snuck into the show. I love the idea of sneaking into concerts, sneaking into like fashion shows, whatever. Like, how often have you done that before? Is that the only time you've ever gotten away with it? It's absolutely not the only time I've gotten away with it. I have a long history of sneaking into things, although hopefully these days I get invited more. But there's like, you know, secret shows at Chase and Market Hotel where the list was full or whatever. And my big move back in the day was like, finding somebody who was already hand stamped and buying them a beer when they come outside and like be walking them to the deli and then being like, all right, lick your wrist and put it on my wrist. And then it'll look like I was already hand stamped. And then I'll walk back in with the confidence of Don Draper and they'll let my ass in. That worked, but it's a long history of kind of like going to things that were maybe for people slightly older than me or people from a different generation or more exclusive and, and finding it so like enthralling. And that's, I kind of feel like that's what that song Japanese posters is about or some of these other songs even, but that was my initial introduction. It was just such like a sexy evening. And I was like, music can be that. It doesn't need to be, oh, let's do a lot of metal music. It doesn't need to be heavy. It doesn't need to be all these other things. And again, it wasn't like I connect with 2007. 2006 was so cool. I wish I wasn't, you know, 12 or whatever. I was in 2006. It was more kind of like, I really like this stuff. And it's kind of interesting that it's still somewhat around me. You know, I think I would have liked the music that I still like if I grew up anywhere else outside of New York. But I wouldn't have been able to contextualize it the way that I'm maybe able to or been able to interact with it in the same way. You know, like you're from Canada, but you and I like all the same stuff. Yeah, it's funny. I was like taking notes while you were (laughs) explaining how you were sneaking into shows. You know what? You're going to be on the list for the rest of your life. You don't got to worry about that anymore. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know I've snuck into shows only 
about like three or four times in my life. And honestly, the only way I got in was just by being confident and pretending like I was supposed to be there. But I have unsuccessfully not made it into shows before, too. So, Oh, listen, there's plenty of times my little antics didn't work. But, you know, I just maybe don't publicize those as much. You got to try and at least (laughs) shoot your shot and just hope to the concert gods that you gain entry to your favorite bands. Um, I know sometimes it's like trying to get in the pit when you have tickets for the seated section yeah for metric every time i've tried to do that and sneak into the pit it's always worked but there's certain shows where no the security guard's like gonna kick me out i've worked concerts i used to intern for a radio station and one of the most tragic things was seeing really really dedicated fans get kicked out of a show and the security guard saying, no, you're not allowed back in. I've seen like grown men cry, like men in their 40s and their 50s, like crying. They're like, no, please, this is my favorite band. And then they just have to like do that drunken walk of shame home alone, missing the concert of their dreams. So yeah. That breaks my heart to hear. It's definitely tragic. You sound like you had such like an interesting upbringing and it's really cool that people are looking at New York in a way that feels reminiscent of the era that I'm kind of covering on my page. So if you could tour with any band from that era, who would you tour with? From that era? Yeah, from the Indie Sleaze era. Oh, interesting. Because usually we just get like, if you could tour with any band and the answer is always Bob Dylan. Current Bob Dylan. He made the best album of last year. Okay. Any band from that era? I, I mean... Probably like Phoenix, maybe. Phoenix or Arctic Monkeys. There's a lot of love for Phoenix. What's your favorite Phoenix song? Their tour was in New York and I caught it and it was great. I think on that one, the new record, it's probably the song After Midnight. Yes. Big picture, best Phoenix song. I guess it's probably just If I Ever Feel Better. Yes. It's a classic for a reason. Although I really love the Bankrupt record. That record, we play that one a lot in the car. What is it about that record in particular that you really love? They have sounds that are popular music sounds like two or three years ahead of them being popular music sounds. What I find about them is you listen to them in two seconds and you know it's them, but it's not like they make the same record every time. You know what I mean? Like every time they really do change quite a bit, but it always sounds consistent. I think it's hard to cover a lot of musical ground without it sounding like you're, you know, doing the 1975 thing where you do every single genre, which obviously like that's the point of their project and they, they do it faithfully. But Phoenix to me cover a lot of musical ground, but it always sounds within a certain pocket and they stand off the edges and I think like a really sweet way. And I just thought there was like a sexiness to Bankrupt that I really dug. And I think it's hard to be understated and energetic at the same time. To me, those are two kind of contrasting emotions. And I think they're able to do both of those, you know, like Philippe Petit on a tightrope. And that's to me like so cool and special. But I mean, listen, any any artists from this period of time clearly are pretty influential to me. And We've already kind of collaborated with some of these people, actually, but hopefully we we better get to open up for some of these people like that soon, because that'd be really special. But we just played our last show of tour last night in Los Angeles at a place called the Terragram Ballroom, and we soundchecked one song, not two, listener, one song. And the venue staff walked up to us and said, has anyone ever said you sounded like Phoenix? Oh, wow. That's a huge compliment. <laughs> I was like, we only soundchecked one song. Wait, we got plenty other songs. So I was just like, sound like Phoenix. I've taken fan pictures as the bass player of Phoenix. We have the same face. Which song was it? Boy Friday? No, it was a song called Swim Zone, which we usually close with. Oh, okay. Yes, I love that song. But Boy Friday to me is kind of like, there's like a bunch of new music coming out of France that I like that's very groovy and like not as like downstrokey like Papoos and Oracle Sisters and bands like that and that to me that's kind of more the the pocket that Boy Friday fits into. 
No, I love Bankrupt. That album is so good. Like Bourgeois, that song, I don't know why I was obsessed with it. Anytime I made a playlist, that song was on it for like a whole year. That's a very cool one to have on it. You know what I mean? It feels like it's like less like got less love than some of their other songs. So it feels like special. But also like you got to give it up for their 2009 album, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. That album's really good too. You know what's funny? Phoenix for me, I got in during Te Amo. So I had never really listened to Phoenix before 2017. That's kind of interesting, actually. I've got weird blind spots where cert- I don't connect with a certain thing. And there's so much other stuff that I love. And so like I'm sure when 2009 came out, Listomania or the Wolfgang Amadeus album, and I'm in middle school and it's the, the record. And it's so rare that like a cool record is also the record. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm sure I was just such like a contrarian little asshole that I was like, I'm not listening to that record. If everyone, (laughs) if we all agreed upon it, then I disagree. You know what I mean? It's like, for that same reason, I only recently discovered Vampire Weekend in the grand scheme of things. Like Father of the Bride was the first Vampire Weekend record that I was like conscious of. But I've since gone back and like done all the homework and know it all and think it's all wonderful. But I just kind of missed it because everyone around me was like, this is great. Yeah. By the way, sometimes we all agree that things are great because they're great. And I just, you know, I think I was like too young and immature to be down with the culture at the time. But because of that, I saw Tamo, I saw that tour a bunch and then Alpha Zulu I was like really present for. But some of these other records I like retroactively got really into. It's really cool that you kind of discovered them like later. I think that's interesting when people fall in love with the band after their like main blow up era. So I could really hear you playing with Phoenix and opening up for them. Hopefully you will. And then I can go to that concert and see both of you. That would be beautiful for both of us. I think a lot of the reasons that I was able to get into some of these artists, maybe after the fact, I mean, obviously it's all of it's kind of after the fact to some degree, just based on like age. But yeah, you know, I think that they all still made great music, even when their kind of sensational moment was over. A lot of these artists had the sensational moment and then just had great careers where they kind of got to lay back in the cut and do them. And they're all still doing them in a great way. And I think, you know, maybe that stuff is less exciting for press or less exciting for TV and film. But for me, it was like, you know, it's probably not going to be Wolfgang Amadeus big because you can't have that many of those unless you're Arctic Monkeys. But yeah. it doesn't mean that that's still not great. You know, 2013 AM, that was the first Arctic Monkeys record that I was present for. And of course, now I know like in and out, I know all of it and I love all of it. And I love the side projects, whatever. But it was interesting that I kind of some of the stuff I was really in on, some of this I missed. Because again, for me, it was just like loving certain records, loving certain music, not even really putting together that there was a scene. That stuff all kind of happened after the fact. I was, you know, I think at the time, if you're like 2008 or 2009, when that first Vampire record came out, like if you didn't like it, you're not going to like listen to it on Spotify. You know what I mean? It's going to take you one more degree to find it. Exactly. Yeah. I can see you opening up for Arctic Monkeys as well. That's another band that I really think you would fit nicely with on tour. You know, whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. Their 2006 album, like I was like 14, 15 and when that album came out and it was just so important to me. They were like one of my first concerts that I went to. I saw them open for Oasis in like 2006. What do you think of their new album compared to some of their older music? Because it is quite a change in their sound. Like, kudos to them. Like, they've gone more of like a funk vibe on this album. Like, what do you think of The Car? I think it's great. And I, I appreciate any comparison to them. Last night, actually, at the show, quite a few people were making that comparison, which I'm always happy about. Yeah. Oh, man, playing with them would be great. I think it's one of the best albums of the year. They're doing kind of a lounge music thing in a really faithful way. It's very Fellini and Breakfast at Tiffany's. There's like an Italian composer, I think the guy's name is. I'm going to butcher his name, but there's a guy named Armando Truvioli or Armando Trovajoli. And he scored all these amazing Italian movies in the 60s and 70s. And if you listen to that music, I think their music makes a ton of sense, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you listen to 
one of my favorite records of all time is called Death of a Ladies Man by Leonard Cohen, but it's kind of his Phil Spector 79 collaboration. And in the context of that kind of music, I think the record makes a ton of sense. And I think it's a great record. I think the people that maybe don't like the record want them to make rock and roll music because I don't think there are people out there that can make better and also more accessible rock and roll music than Arctic Monkeys. I think they don't want to do it. You know, I think people that don't like the record want them to do something that they don't want to do. Yeah. But if you listen to it and just enjoy it as a piece of art and not as like, oh man, I want AM again. I don't think you're getting that. I love seeing artists branch out from their usual sound and try something different, but it does suck sometimes when that pisses off fans because it's it should be you should be like hoping that your favorite artists grow and try new things. But yeah, it would be really cool to see you all on tour with either them or Phoenix. I swear it's going to happen. We can manifest this. That would be great. We don't have jobs or anything like that, so it better happen <laughs> for sure. Twenty twenty three, we're manifesting. What do you already. think about me? <laughs> So this might be kind of an unfair question because you don't have the rest of your bandmates here to defend themselves. But in your opinion, which one of you has the most chaotic rock and roll vibe? Well, I think that we're big picture, pretty fucking tame and boring. You know, <laughs> and like in that department, like any trouble we would have gotten into, we kind of fucked around enough as like when we were younger that now it's maybe not as bad. But I would say our guitar player, Zach, is the one who is misunderstood by the people outside of New York and maybe I'm the one that has to go and like make it good. Or one time we walked up to like a Dunkin' Donuts in Boston. We were on tour with a podcast called How Long Gone and he just like walked right up to the woman behind the, the counter at Dunkin' and was like, what's up? Do you guys have oat milk yet or what? <laughs> <laughs> and it was cool because for a moment there she didn't know we were a band of assholes from New York for one second and yeah. then she found out very quickly. Well, I kind of relate to that though as a lactose intolerant person. Uh, that's my question to every single... Yeah, but I'm sure you say it in a way that does that with less attitude. But you know what? I actually don't know if he's lactose intolerant. I think he just wanted oat milk. And do you have any yet or what? <laughs> but you know what? He's actually, he's actually so lovely and wonderful and handsome that it's never an issue. If I meet him, that's the first thing I'm going to walk up to him and say. What's up? You got oat milk or what? <laughs> He'll know exactly what you're talking about. I'm going to have to clear this with the boys. I'm going to have to shoot him a text and say, is this okay? No, for me, I'd probably say it in an annoying way. Um, sorry, do you do you have like oat milk? That's how I. I mean, as, say as it, you can tell by my everything, me. that's that's my fucking vibe. <laughs> I walk up to someone, I say, "I'm so 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 sorry." Any chance I could get you to perform your core responsibility? <laughs> that's me at the venue, going up to the sound guy, being like, "I'm really really sorry, but can you do sound?" Are there any situations where you're like, the sound guy is like on some whack shit, like he's doing me dirty, like it's just what is going on? Luckily, our setup's really easy. If we were like Phoenix running all these fancy synths, maybe then it would be like, you really need to like bring a person. At the moment, we're pretty DIY on the touring side. We kind of just do it all ourselves. But luckily, I know how to do the thing. So I kind of basically let them do it. And then after we soundtrack, I'm walk over and I'm like, hey, if you could really kindly do X, Y, and Z, that'd be great. And then usually they do and it's good to go. But nothing ever crazy. You know what I mean? You got to check your ego at the door. Like, yeah. And you should probably take that and run with that as far as you can in life and just be good at what you do. <laughs> you know, that's kind of our big strategy. But it is funny. You're like, all right, I'm in Springfield, Missouri with this guy that thinks he's fucking Phil Spector of sounds. And I'm like, come on, man. Like, who cares? Honestly, I'm, I'm the guy singing in the band. I'm the guy that destroyed my life to do this band. And I don't even care that much. Who gives a shit? I will say 2011 Oceaga, that was the one time where every band wanted to fight the sound guy. Like Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie was about to throw hands with whoever was working the sound. And most of them are really good at their job and know what they're doing. But uh, it is really funny sometimes to see 
so much they can sometimes fuck it up for a Derail band. It. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, you know, I think festival. We played a handful of festivals, and everyone's stressed out because there's all of this stuff that's kind of splayed everywhere, and you don't know where your possessions are, and your gear, and your people, and you know, you know, it's enough to make a Ben Gibbard want to fight. Yeah. <laughs> I never expected that from him. I was like, Death Cab for Cutie. It's not giving like world star, but you know, Ben Gibbard ex world star. <laughs> In my opinion, Rebounder, like, you guys perfectly balance sonic nods to indie rock, but with modern production. Like, all your recordings are super tight and very clean. Like, Japanese posters, for example, I love that song. And that part where the main riff pitches down and overlaps with the organ rip, it almost imitates a tape stop effect without doing an actual tape stop. Thank you so much. I love that song to death. Is it a conscious decision to, like, record a modern indie rock sound? You know, I feel like I'm not like a big podcast listener, but I feel like every podcast I listen to, someone asks someone a simple question and they answer yes and no. And I hate to be that guy, but the answer is yes and no. First of all, I want to kudos on catching the Japanese posters on the riff getting pitched down towards the end because that's some real for the head shit. That's some real for the sound guide Oshiaga shit. (laughs) You know, it's less like trying to make a conscious modern indie rock sound. It's more just like I make songs or productions or I guess some people in Los Angeles use the word records. (laughs) I want to make stuff that I love, and I make a tremendous amount of music, and I throw away almost all of it. And the stuff that we're left with that we do release, the Rebounder songs that do make it to the public, like, I truly do love them, and I really, like, I don't listen to them after I make them, but I listen to them a lot when I make them. And at one point or another, the songs are usually, like, my favorite song to listen to. And I have, like, a one-week love affair with the song, and I feel like we're on, like, a honeymoon moment with the song. And I think for me to love a recording, it needs to be kind of new sounding and exciting sounding like i'm obsessed with this artist remy wolf who we played a show with it was rebounder remy wolf and cautious clay she put out this album that i think is so amazing and the drum sounds and the guitar sounds the melodies like it's it's one of my favorite records to come out the last couple years and i listened to it a lot and i'd like to think that you listen to boy friday or factory girl and you listen to what we're doing with the drums you could be like oh maybe it's inspired by that and the guitar playing is inspired by the parcels record or the arctic monks record or whatever so I'm just trying to make a conscious effort to make recordings that sound new and exciting to me. Yeah. And then I do make a conscious effort to make sure the Rebounder live set rocks more than the record. Yeah. So when you see our show, it's like, oh, these are the songs that I know, but they rock harder. They're faster. There's more guitars. There's more drums. There's a live element to it that's different than just like listening to like you when you see a certain artist and their set is just exactly the record or there's a lot of backing tracks or whatever. And, you know, it's cool if you're really perfect like that, but rebounder is a kind of modern production project. And then live an indie rock band making those songs and kind of elevating them, you know? Yeah. You've been playing music for a while, but you are a relatively new band. Like what are some of the most glaring issues that you are coming across just as a new performer or a new band trying to make it in the industry and try to make money off of your art? I feel like Rebounder is now in this interesting place. It's nice that we have like fancy numbers and people stream our music a lot and we've done some cool tours and I just want more and bigger. And I think we have this great live show that I want to find a way to, to get, you know, the Phoenix tour, whatever that might thing may be. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'd like to think that we're very lucky and 
there's certainly people that are getting more things than us and certainly a lot of people getting less things than us but i just hope that we can continue to do more of that you know because we played probably 70 shows this year but i want to double that next year that's amazing you're putting in the hours certainly we're doing a lot of sleeping and moving vehicles and they're not nice moving vehicles i'll say that much <laughs> you're in a van or a tour bus it's it's not a tour bus oh no so how do you sleep do you stay at like motels and stuff or hotels or what we stay exclusively in terrifying places and terrifying neighborhoods yes okay true well, you know, you've already played with some really amazing acts. Like, you're well on your way to blowing up, in my opinion. And I'm such a fan of you guys. Oh, yeah. I appreciate that. You mentioned playing with Remy Wolf, Cautious Clay. Like, you've toured with The Neighborhood. And you also yeah. have a song with The Neighborhood as well or with Jesse. How did you kind of first get involved with The Neighborhood? I met them truly right when they first put out Sweater Weather and were, like, first cracking and just by chance, a friend brought me to see them in New York. And I'm pretty sure the 1975 opened the show. Oh, wow. Truly a chance thing where a guy that I kind of know was like, hey, I'm kind of friendly with these guys from outside of LA and they've got the song and it's going and you want to come see the show. And yeah, I mean, I go see a lot of shows like, yeah, let's go and went to the show not knowing really anything about them. At this point, they were already having a big fucking moment. I just didn't yeah. happen to know about it because I, you know, wasn't paying attention and Went to the show and thought they were really cool and then wound up meeting Jesse and kind of connected with him really over t-shirt design because I used to design a lot of t-shirts and design t-shirts for projects I was involved in, sold, had my own clothing brand and was like really into that part of life outside of music. He and I kind of connected on that tip and as time goes on, we just became closer and closer friends. We've worked on a lot of music together and I hope some of it sees the light of day sometime. He's like the most prolific songwriter I know. Like I know a lot of people whose full-time jobs are writing songs and making music and I don't know anyone who makes as much music as him. Like it's remarkable. Yeah. Outside of Noah, he's probably the person that I've written the most songs with and I think of him as like a true like musical collaborator with Noah and myself and just the best dude and the best music. But yeah, love them to death. Love their music. Can't say enough nice things about them. Jesse, by the way, I mean, I don't know if musically you think that the neighborhood are like in the family tree of the meet me in the bathroom Indie Sleeves thing, but he can talk about this stuff at length. Oh, for sure. He's got a pretty phenomenal musical background and I kind of always connect people like that. Like I want to hear whoever I'm having dinner with telling me about the Lee Hazelwood album that isn't on Spotify yet. You yeah. Know, that's what I want. I want to hear about the Bob Dylan record that is only on YouTube. That's kind of the stuff that I like get off on. And yeah. he's kind of the same way, you know? I remember summer of 2013, Sweater Weather was like the shit. That was the song playing everywhere. It reminds me so much of that summer. So he kind of came in at the tail end there. Great fucking song. Yeah, it's a great song. They kind of brought in and then transitioned into what I felt was sort of a newer era of music, which is cool too. I think that they are like silently one of the most influential acts of the last two decades. Yeah, for sure. I know I get hit up by a lot of kids asking me to make a song for them that sounds like the neighborhood. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not gonna do I'm like I'm not gonna you're not gonna be better at them than that. You might as well do something new, you know? The best is like I think it was like last year this person I met at work discovered sweater weather for the first time. But they're like yeah, in their happening. late thirties. And I was like, How did you not hear this song before? They're like, it's such a great song. And I'm like, it's so weird to have that song be like thought about in a new way today. But I digress. <laughs> that song, maybe not unlike some of the musical cultural movements that you follow, you know, is great forever. For sure it is. It wasn't just good for the time. It's great forever. Thus, it can come back. You know, there's like silly haircuts can't come back. No, it was just great haircuts can, you know. <laughs> it was just more surprising that they didn't hear it like when it was in its heyday. You know, if a great season of television is on, maybe you missed the cool song that year, you know? That's very, very true. If you could go on tour with another band, doesn't have to be a band from Hindi Sleeze era. Who would you tour with? I'd love to open up for The Neighborhood again. Those were really special shows. And I think it's cool to open up for people who you love and are close with and you also love their music. 
I'd love to open up for if Santa Claus ever tours again. Yes. There's a band called Parcels from Australia. Everyone thinks they're from France. They're <laughs> fucking sick. Why do they think they're from France? Because they sound like Daft Punk and they blew up in France. Oh, okay. I see. I see. Love to open up for Remy Wolf. I'd love to open up for Vampire Weekend. I think the world of those guys. And I was listening to that Cults record today. And if we could open up on tour with Cults, I think that would be a very cool yes. fit. And I love the new them. Cults record is so good. That song Monolithic on it. Amazing. Yes. 8th yes. Avenue. I believe that our recording studio that we have in an undisclosed location in New York, I believe it briefly belonged to them. Yeah. Under the Midnight Sun is just, yeah, I can't say enough. Have you seen I'm Not There, the Todd Haynes film? I actually recently saw it in theaters. They were screening it at Metrograph in New York for one Sunday randomly. Because of course, when it came out, I was you know far too much of a contrarian to enjoy it. So I, wouldn't, I didn't <laughs> go, but I went with a friend recently and saw it and it blew my mind. I cried many times. And I was very unhappy when it ended because it, I thought it was too short. Yes. I felt the same way about that film. It's really, really good. I would say it's Indy Slee's canon too. Whoa. Because it came out 2007, so. There you go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, say no <laughs> Todd more. Todd Haynes, kind of a prolific sort of director of this era too. And of course, just like you have Heath Ledger, Christian Bale, Kate Blanchett, like all these amazing actors. Also, the soundtrack was fantastic. Yes, the soundtrack was so good. There's a handful of recordings that was made for it with this band they put together. It was like Eddie Vedder and Stephen Malcolmus and Yola Tango. There's a version of Ballad of a Thin Man on that soundtrack that's like there's a cat power cover of Stuck Inside of Mobile with Memphis yes. again. I really got into that soundtrack, but I just remember like seeing that movie because it was playing in New York not that long ago and my buddy was like, yo, you got to see this thing. And I'm not great at seeing movies. I got real ADD and you know, it's like I can't see a movie during the daylight because I can't look at a screen during the daylight. I need to be outside. But I remember we walked inside and it was daylight and we walked outside. It was pitch black outside. And I was like, that movie should have been longer. And he's like, it feels like the day has changed. Perhaps the movie was long enough. That was actually filmed, I think, in Montreal. And I remember I tried to see if I could get like a background part. Oh, cool. It didn't work out. My brother Noah, who sings and plays bass in the band, he does a lot of background acting work. They always need tall men. Yes. So he does that when we're off tour. I am also very tall. So okay. yes, I find that that happens. They need tall women. And I'm like, I'm your girl. I got you. So I was a background actor in that James Franco show about like the 80s, I think was it called? Oh. He plays both characters. Inside oh. you, there are two James Francos. Yes, yes. I know what show you're talking about, but it's escaping me. Yeah, whatever that was, I was on that for a day. I've like done it a bunch of times. I was like in the Hands May Tale and like oh, all these shit. other shows they do here in Canada. But it's such, such long hours. You're really waiting around. It's like hurry up and wait. Well, you know, tour is the same thing. So it's just good prep if ever you go on tour. Yeah. What's your desert island band? Like, I know this is so difficult, but if you can only take one band, don't say Bob Dylan. I'm not going to say Bob <laughs> Dylan. Say Bob I, I think Dylan. I've made it clear it how I feel band. about him. <laughs> it has to be a band. It can't be Nancy Sinatra. Um, okay, fine. You can do a solo artist. Sure, sure, sure. Just go ahead and call me after dinner and we'll get to the bottom of this. Um, <laughs> it's probably Bowie. Bowie, yes, yes, yes. He's got enough great records and covered enough musical ground that I don't think you'd ever be bored. No, it's true. And I think he's kind of Beatles-esque in that you can hear him in everything. Yeah. And it's always cool when there's an artist that comes along and even if people aren't saying, I'm doing a Bowie thing, they kind of, you know what I mean? I listen to him quite a bit and a lot of his records that maybe aren't as appreciated are also fantastic. So I think if I was truly on a desert island, at least then I'd have a lot of selection, you know? If you ever had the time, you should watch this film. It's called Crazy with a period between each letter. It's from Montreal. It's a Montreal film. Okay. There's a lot of Bowie references in that film that I really love. And it's really, really good. I think you'd like it. Absolutely. What's your like go-to karaoke song? 
I'm really glad you asked. It's Intergalactic by the Beastie Boys. Amazing. My co-producer is really happy with this answer because he loves that song as well. And before there was TikTok, I think he's shown me some video of him in high school where they literally, like, for ComTech, did some sort of lip sync video production music video for that. So he's, he's oh, really yeah. happy with your all right. answer. We're all on the same page. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm a really big Beastie Boys fan. They're really important to me and, and my brother. And... I'm not a big karaoke guy. I find karaoke terrifying. Same. Particularly when you're like a full-time musician because then you really got you got to wow people at karaoke and I'm not interested in that. But I remember I was hanging out with someone who was doing a karaoke party a million years ago and she was like, you got to do a song. And I was like, oh, that sounds fucking horrifying. And I was like going through the songbook and everyone was doing a Bowie song and I was like, well, that's not happening. And Intergalactic to me kind of was checking all those boxes where it's got fun voices and it's catchy and you get to scream. I think for karaoke songs, what you want is a song that people know, but they don't know that they know. And it's on the shorter side of things. Yeah. Intergalactic is a song that people know, but they haven't heard it in a while. How to pick a good cover and how to pick a good karaoke song is the same thing. Because like, if you're like karaoke song is like whatever the big song is of the day, the big Dua Lipa or the big Drake song, everyone heard that song all day. They heard it in Ubers. They heard it in the deli in the morning. So if you were to cover it, it would be redundant. You got to pick a song that people love and know, but they haven't heard that day. You know, like we always used to get covers wrong in our band because I'd be like, we're covering a Leonard Cohen B side. (laughs) We're covering like a really not well known Panda Bear song, but it goes into an even less known Karen O song. I mean, I would love all those covers, but (laughs) thank God. (laughs) Maybe they're not the crowd pleasers, but I would love them. But you know what I mean? We're doing like Marlon Williams. We're doing a Walker Brothers song at one point. It was all over the place because I think that music listening is. And then at some point, Oh, you know what it was? We did a roof show. It was like our first show back from COVID where we played on a roof July 2021, I guess. Maybe that was like when you could start doing roof shows. And we had all of our friends at this roof in Bushwick and we played all these new songs. We're like, we got to play a song that people know because we can't just drop all these new songs. And we were like, let's do Young Folks by Peter Bjorn and John because it's a classic song and you know it, but you haven't heard it that day. And it kind of is like one of those songs where like, obviously when that song came out, like our band, we were all in like middle school and preschool, but it kind of is like a never ending hit because it was in so many TV shows and movies like Gossip Girl and like all these things we love so much. So we kind of covered that song half as a joke, half as a wink. And it's been pretty much in the set list ever since. What's the crowd's response? Do they sing the lyrics back to you? Fucking bananas every time. Yeah. <laughs> the show is, you know, like our music's really precise and we play to a click track live and all those things. And then it's fun when we play that song and people really know the words because then we can all just like not even sing and just like talk shit. And I just know like our guitar player, Zach, whenever we play that song and people know the first verse, he just he grabs the mic and he goes, I know you know the fucking words. <laughs> like We all just start laughing. It's, it's like loose and it's great. And it's a fun song. And if you're really young in the audience and you don't know it's a cover song, Great. Now you think we have a great song, you know? Yeah. It really works for both ways. I got to find a way to cover Intergalactic at some point. I got to find a way to make that work with instruments. You should. You should. We're kind of gearing up to the end of this episode, but I have one final question for you. What do you love most about being a band in New York? The dinners, really. <laughs> the, the food is really no, good. No, no, no. no I, just love, I love the hang. You know what I mean? Like, we yeah. hang a lot. I love being in a gang. I love being in the last gang in town. It's fun to get to do this with people that you love, you know, because as a hired tour musician, I've done this a lot with people that I didn't know. Yeah. Mino and Kobe, before this band, we were all hired touring guns playing for just whoever. And that was cool because we all wanted to, like, go on tour. We wanted to, like, see the world, learn our instruments for real, learn how this thing went. But the plan was always to one day, like, do this, you know? Yeah. New York is just a very easy city, not financially, of course, but we can all just like meet up with ease, go to a thing with ease. It's fun to have like a built-in 
group of people that you're on the same page with, with like aligned goals. I don't know. I just, if I think about it too much, I will cry because I do feel like there's a very beautiful bond and we wouldn't be this close if we didn't live in New York because we probably wouldn't spend so much time together. We wouldn't hang out this much. We wouldn't rehearse this much. Granted, three of us have known each other our entire lives, but a lot of what we do is very hard. It's hard to get on tour. It's hard to make songs that you think are great. It's hard to get people to listen to music, all that shit. But something about the fact that we're all get to hang out with such ease in New York makes it all feel within range and makes it feel like maybe it all ain't so far away. And that to me is why I love being in a band in New York City, the only city. Well, that's a great answer. I love New York and I love Rebounder. Thank you so much, Dylan, for coming on the pod and being here today with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to see band culture make a big comeback. And I love seeing bands like Rebounder get out there and gig. And for listeners, make sure to follow Rebounder on Instagram at ReboundernYC. And you can find their music on all streaming platforms. So hope to see you on stage soon, Dylan. Oh, hell yeah. See you later. See you later.